My name is Justin McClure. I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about Jess Franco. Also known as Jesus Franco. Part one. Because. Part one. We've never done this before, We've Justin. never done this before. But we've also never discussed a filmmaker who has 200 plus feature film credits. Wow. And so if you don't know who Jess Franco is, how would you describe him, Will? Jess Franco is kind of the ultimate Euro trash auteur. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is a schlockmeister has many fans but is still quite disreputable and he's somebody for whom the act of creation was more important than any one film you know there are certain filmmakers like stanley kubrick say who have a very clear filmography where you've got you know 12 movies each one is a lovingly handcrafted and much thought about perfect object then you have jess franco who made 12 movies in a year, some of them incomplete, some of them which would be repurposed into other movies. And he would use the same uh, story themes, the same plots, the same character names in movie to movie. He adapted uh, Marquis de Sade's Pleasures in the Boudoir like five times. And Justine, you know, (laughs) probably five times as well. The same actors, the same ideas. You know, there's an enormous amount of sameness to his movies. And yet, as Tim Lucas, a video watchdog, once said, you cannot really understand Jess Franco without seeing all of his movies. And you can never see all of his movies, which I think is what's magical about people that get obsessed with his work. Now, Jess Franco was somebody who was an acquired taste for me. Because he didn't give you the stuff that you wanted. It's not a perfect filmography. So, you know, you can pick one at random and you'll think, what's the big deal? Mm -hmm. And then, you you know, if you're interested in exploitation movies, you will inevitably see several Jess Franco movies. And then uh, you'll see another one. You'll think, I I don't get it. Why, Why does this guy have fans? Then you'll see another one. And then maybe another one that's like, oh, wait a minute. And then you'll get drawn in. When I got into like Euro trash... Jess Franco offered me something that was different than Lucho Fulci because Fulci, it was just right up there, right? Mm. Like the surrealism, the gore, the kind of non sequitur nature of his work. And Jess Franco, let's be honest, it's kind of boring most of the time. Yeah, and you know, you would often hear people say it's more about mood than anything else. And, you know, early on, I would think, what mood? But then, <laughs> as you see more and more of them, you start to figure out what the mood is. It's like a magic eye painting. And then and then you get what the mood is. And, and you're like, I want more of this. And I think the difference between Jess Franco and other gutter auteurs is that Jess Franco started legitimately making big-budgeted musicals. He worked as Orson Welles, uh, second unit director on The Chimes at Midnight. Mm -hmm. And he was someone that was respectable and was only as this kind of obsession with making movies continued that everything else got peeled away and you got his pure animal needs right on screen. Yeah, you kind of expect a a filmmaker to follow, I don't know, let's say the John Waters trajectory of making these uh, little homemade gutter movies and then making bigger and bigger movies until finally they're they're at their peak and they're making studio movies. Whereas Franco, you know, like his mentor Orson Welles, started at the top and worked his way down. But the further down he worked, the more he became himself. His films are like free associative writing exercises when they're at their best. You feel like you're getting almost liquid style and you're getting something straight out of his subconscious and he's just sort of blurting it onto the screen and 
it goes from movie and because no one movie is a masterpiece no one movie is the ultimate franco movie eh, it, well i'll try to argue yeah. this in this episode uh, maybe he made it there are ones that are better than others <laughs> yes and there are themes that and ideas that get developed across entire eras of his career and it's so immediate when he makes a film i remember there's one movie i don't remember what title it is that he's like there's a crowd walking by and then somebody looks into the camera that's just some random passerby and he angrily zooms into their face because like in that moment he was so frustrated that this person was breaking the shot and it actually gets used in the movie well okay this is another thing that got me revisiting his movies this week uh, he's a very strong visual stylist. Uh, he's always doing something interesting. And yet it often seems like the camera has a mind of its own in his movies. The camera is not necessarily in sync with what the story is. He'll be zooming and moving it at random. There will be sharp cuts. So you might see a vista in one in one shot and then an extreme close up in the next shot. You know, the musical score might not quite sync up with that. Well, I think a big part of Franco's kind of auteurism is the fact that he was also obsessed with music and jazz music mm -hmm. and he wrote a lot of the scores to his films so some of his best films have really weird scores that only underline this Franco-ness to them. And you look at the visual style, the whole style of his movies and there are times when it seems arbitrary, but I don't know how to explain it. The more familiar you become with his, with him and his his cinema and his worldview, the arbitrariness of it starts to have a coherence. It's like, oh yeah, th this arbitrariness is all coming from this one guy. Like you said, the more movies you see, this weird cutting that makes no sense, you'll see it again in another film and another film. So there's logic behind the decisions that he's making. And then as you watch him, you go, okay why is this happening yeah and the further along you get in his career when he has fewer and fewer resources and he's and the films and, get tougher and tougher to watch and, and it's just like pure ed it's almost as if you're seeing the world directly through his eyes and you know he's shooting at these mundane locations a lot of hotel rooms a lot of just cabarets know, shitty hallways <laughs> uh and yet he'll do them with strange low angles and weird lighting and it's like, you know, he's rendering the familiar very unfamiliar through his gaze. But, you know, we're saying all this exciting stuff about his later work. And now we're going to talk about his early stuff, like the awful Dr. Orloff. Which was kind of his breakthrough, I think it's fair to say. Well, his first genre movie, this being a horror picture. Mm. And it was the one that, like, people often go to when they go, look, Franco can make real movies. And I'm putting it in air quotes here. Mm. And so the film stars Howard Vernon as the titular Orloff who is a scientist who, in the classic mold of Eyes Without a Face, is going around capturing beautiful women, trying to take their heart or some well, organs. He's, he's taking, like, skin and mm -hmm. grafting the skin on to his uh, disfigured daughter, who he's keeping alive in his spooky dungeon. And this Eyes Without a Face theme is something that Franco goes back to again and again and again in all of his movies. This was his first horror movie, and I believe it's also the first horror movie in Spanish history. You know, one of the things that's kind of interesting about Franco is he was making very lurid sex and violence movies in uh franco controlled spain that's right uh, not the other franco <laughs> yeah. that is um and you know this was a <laughs> spanish french co-production and he you know he had to set it in france so that you could show this sort of stuff uh, and that classic um this hong kong film is taking place in macau way that it happens now <laughs> yes exactly uh 
Franco was inspired by the Hammer horror film Brides of Dracula, but he said, oh, I can do a gothic horror movie like this, but I can do it with my own style. And it's there. It's like definitely low there. angles, these big empty rooms. You're almost getting that minimalism that would come to define Franco in his later career here in this gothic uh, setting. And just, just strange angles, comic book dialogue and acting. Sorry to use comic book that way. <laughs> Dismissively? Yeah. I, <laughs> How I, dare you? I, I mean it in a charming way. Like, it's very direct mm-hmm. and, and I mean, aggressive. all of Franco's films are inspired by, like, pulps mm-hmm. and his love for cereals. Franco would always talk about that he was an omnivore when it came to movies and art and culture. Like, he has this big long spiel about John Le Godard being his favorite filmmaker that mm. it, just go on the internet and read it. And when you read that, you go, oh, I see that in his movies as well. Mm, interesting. I might have guessed like uh, Sergei Eisenstein or <laughs> someone like that. All the big filmmakers are obviously inspired Franco in his filmmaking. So, you know, The Awful Dr. Orloff. It's a good movie. It's not, you know. I it, wouldn't rush out to recommend it, it to people. It's not the one that I, I would say is my definitive Franco movie because um, it's in black and white and it looks it looks wonderful <laughs> yeah. but like he people get, who are starting on just yeah. Franco are like Ugh, black and white movies I don't watch them. It just he, he really comes into himself when he has a lurid color palette I think. I, if you want to see a black and white Franco I recommend the diabolical Dr. Zed which is uh, more like surrealistic than um, the awful Dr. Orloff. I think before we got on to maybe the Franco movies we liked uh, we should go to the mid to late 60s, which was when he was very much at the peak of his career, at least in a certain mm-hmm. in a certain sense. This is when he was commanding the biggest budgets and was working with relatively big name actors. And he was working with a producer named Harry Allen Towers. So did you read the bio of Harry Allen Towers that he was chased out of the United States on charges of white slavery? Oh, my God. Yeah. The article that I read, which was in Stephen Thrower's amazing book, Murderous Passions, about Jess Franco... They say, like, they don't know if he was actually guilty of it or they were using him as, like, a honey trap for somebody else. But it caused Harry Allen Towers to, like, get on a plane and start making international productions where he would claim he could start a movie in 24 hours from the second that he lands on the ground of a different country. These movies were certainly like the trashy, you mm-hmm. know, the big name actors who appeared in them, like Jack Palance, Klaus Kinski, Christopher Lee, Christopher Lee, um, um, Mercedes McCambridge. They were slumming, but you know, they carried themselves sort of like they were prestige pictures, like <laughs> Jack Palance and Justine just oh hamming it up. <laughs> okay. So, a lot of these movies were literary adaptations, but of course, you know, they would pick kind of sexy, sexy literary classics. So Yeah, like the Fu Manchu series. <laughs> like the Fu Manchu series, which one of which was on Mystery Science Theater. Actually. Oh, was it? Yeah. Was it one that Jess Franco directed? Because there was Fu Manchu films that he didn't make as well. It was a, a Jess Franco film. Oh, okay. Uh, and it's not, I forget which one it was, but it's not one that's very well regarded. If it was in the jungle, it was Blood of Fu Manchu. If it was in a castle, it was Castle of Fu Manchu. It was Castle of Fu Manchu. Okay. Yeah. I watched that one this week. Mm. Not good. (laughs) Yeah. Well, there you go. Uh, I suggested that we watch his 1968 film, Marquis de Sade, Justine. And I think that, you know, this film is very important because the Marquis de Sade is something that Franco goes back to again and again and again. And it defines this kind of sexual perversity that fascinates him. I saw this movie, uh, Justine, back in the day when I wasn't really getting Franco. But you were a big Jack Palance head and you're like, yeah. I need to see all of his movies. Well, I saw it and it actually inspired me to go read the Marquis de Sade's actual book, Justine. <laughs> wow. Because I thought, well, maybe there's something here. You know, I, I, A, I want to read a sexy book. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, right. And and B, I think perhaps I'm missing something. And 
I really enjoyed the Marquis de Sade's book, and it has Ugh, you degenerate. It has all this stuff in it that uh, Franco doesn't do justice to. Mm-hmm. So you know he's working in the late '60s, so obviously he's not going to capture the full extent of de Sade's depravery. He had his biggest budget ever; it was a million dollars, I believe. It's a pretty tame adaptation of the book, but when the Marquis de Sade was writing, de Sade was like kind of being ironic. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was he was making a joke about. He was taking sort of that Nietzschean idea that God is dead to its absolute furthest extent. And he was looking at this corrupt Parisian ruling class and saying, well, I'm just going to put down the sorts of things you do and fantasize about doing. Mm. And I'm going to call you on your hypocrisy. None of the humor or the politics of him are in this movie. So when people first approach work of Jess Franco, the idea of humor seems a little bit foreign to them because I think they look at these films and they go, oh, they're badly made. This person doesn't know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And Jess Franco is a very funny filmmaker. And it's sometimes not right there on the surface. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's right in your face. Like uh, he did a spy film called Lucky the inscrutable mm-hmm. that's Jess Franco at his like wildest and most funny I actually when I watched it this week I was like oh it's like a Hong Kong comedy sounds good it is what he's not is a social satirist no like, like Marquis de Sade was and in fact in this movie Justine you see Klaus Kinski playing de Sade at, at the Bastille <laughs> every now and then in like these framing scenes where he's writing the book and he's just sweaty and hallucinating he's uh, depicted, naked women he's depicted as this like crazy man who's like yeah hallucinating all this stuff and like that's not actually what he was. Like, <laughs> yep. The Marquis de Sade was actually like a very like erudite and smart person. Uh, although <laughs> Listen, also depraved. Leave the Marquis de Sade alone! <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm talking too much about de Sade. I don't know. I think I'm talking about it so much because I watched this movie again and mm-hmm. it's like so frustrating and disappointing. It's 124 minutes. It's so long and it's like you could make, I mean, Pasolini made a really good movie out of this sort of material. 120 Days of Sodom. Very erotic. <laughs> Very erotic. Uh, and this movie, Justine, is such a slog. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, like you said, understand the source material in a way that is interesting. It just thinks like, hey, look at this nudity. Yeah. That's what you want, right? And it's like, no, that's not why the Marquis de Sade's work fascinates people. Yeah. It's a, a different reason that, you know, Jeff Franco would go and explore more and more throughout his film career. I mean, he did it again just a few years later in a self-funded project. Eugenie de Sade, yeah. yeah. I will say, though, so the plot of Justine, it has Romina Power, daughter of Tyrone Power, as Justine, who is born alongside her sister, Juliet, and they go on parallel lives. Juliet decides to live a life of utter depravity, and Justine decides to live a life of virtue. And, you know, we'll see, uh, spoiler, but one of them ends up better off than the other one does. Even though that uh, the one that ends up better off is like, oh, oh, my life is so miserable, I'm not happy, and it's like, mm, I don't know about that. That was definitely not Desaad's <laughs> conclusion. <Yeah. laughs> uh, but, you know, Romina Power, who was forced on Jess Franco. He didn't want her. She is not a a very compelling presence on screen. It's kind of a Candide-like story if she Mm -hmm. goes around and is abused by all these people. You know, it culminates with kind of the one good scene of the movie, which is Jack Palance as this uh, (laughs) scenery-chewing priest? Yeah, he's a priest or, or a bishop, and he is leading this 
group of priests in the defilement of a group of women Mm -hmm. um and he is unhinged he's drunk i think uh i have jack palance at his international best when he stopped making films in hollywood and he just started making spaghetti westerns and jess franco films and uh, jean-luc godard pictures just wanting to burst out of the screen and grapple with the audience just go to youtube and look up some scenes of him in this movie (laughs) so good but like jess franco He understood why this film didn't work in the sense that, like, because of the main actor that he was saddled with, he knew she couldn't illustrate this idea of, like, this woman takes pleasure from these masochistic uh, events. Yeah. Instead, it feels more like she's being tortured. And she's very passive. Passive. And she's, as he said, it feels like I'm making Bambi 2, where it's like a Disney-fied version of the story. And, you know, in his later Marquis de Sade adaptations, he really leans into the sex a little more, mm. which is probably, probably <laughs> to a, correct. To a gynecological um, level <laughs> at some point, but we'll get into that later. And then in 1969, the same year that Marquis de Sade's Justine came out, he made Venus in Furs. Which I really liked, and which is a Harry Allen Towers movie. Mm-hmm. And one that was actually taken out of Jeff Franco's hands and re-edited, so the American version everyone associates with it, which is the story of a jazz trumpet player who, um, in hard-boiled noir voiceover, go through his romantic entanglement with a woman that he saw get murdered, but then she came back? But did she? What's going on? I mean, the viewer doesn't really know either. Even though this is a Harry Allen Towers movie, and it's another uh, very loose literary adaptation, although really not at all. It's just kind of the title. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But even though it's in that Harry Allen Towers sort of uh, big budget mold, it feels like an early instance of that that pure Franco style, that stream of consciousness. Everything from his id just splashed into a movie. If someone wanted to watch their first Franco movie, I think Venus and Furs is a very good one to start with because Mm -hmm. it's slick it's fun but it has all the franco touchstones because this is a film that actually franco wrote the screenplay of it was originally called black angel Mm -hmm. and as the credits say based on a story by jess franco Mm -hmm. and this cast is charismatic on screen klaus kinski shows up for a bunch of scenes and maria rom as the centerpiece of this film haba haba (laughs) haba voo (laughs) as you said uh in your letterbox review you're like a cartoon tex avery dog whose eyes pop out of his skull (laughs) this is a film that this character Maria Rom who's murdered and comes back and is she dead was it just a fake was it a twin double she kills the people that murdered her by being so alluring that they essentially just have heart attacks and die yeah what what a premise <laughs> yes and I think uh, yeah it's great <laughs> and it works because it is an erotic film because Jess Franco this idea of eroticism at this point of his career he's kind of getting it and it's like best form, I think, because it's really difficult to be erotic when he's working later on in some dingy's flophouse apartment. It's a you know, let me say this. It's a different kind of eroticism. <laughs> yes. By the way, there's a scene in Venus and First that I just want to highlight, which is that scene where it's at this kind of like cool jet set party and our hero is, you know, playing the trumpet uh, as part of the band. And he's watching as Maria Rom as the Venus and Furs and Klaus Kinski. Venus and Furs. <laughs> as the song plays every time she murders someone. Uh, he watches these two people sort of seduce each other and he's looking on jealously, but everybody else at the party is standing motionless. It's a very um, Alain René, uh, Alain <laughs> Rob Grier, last year in Marion Bad kind of thing. Yes. I think Jeff Franco's talked about how he ripped that off for that scene. I, it looks great. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Like that scene too, 
it's difficult for me to know what's Franco's and what's not because he said that like someone went in and worked with the structure of it. There's an Italian version that's available as well, but that has all the sexiness cut out of it and it's edited by Bruno Mattei. So no, thank you. <laughs> now, a turning point in Franco's career was, I think it was uh, 69 or 70 when he made that film Count Dracula, which starred Christopher Lee as Dracula, but it was not a hammer horror film and it was publicized as the- a true adaptation. Yeah, like an actual faithful adaptation and it had uh, Herbert Lom and Klaus Kinski as Renfield and a bunch of other stars and it's this was I think the first Franco movie I ever saw <laughs> and it's boring as hell so boring it's not a true adaptation no. not even close and you know it doesn't have a particularly good reputation and I don't know if it's ever been confirmed but it seems that Franco was very frustrated by the experience and it led to the dissolution of his relationship with Harry Allen Towers but what it did lead to is a relationship with Soledad Miranda who came to define a very important part of Jeff Franco's career. And she's kind of the uh, James Dean of Eurotrash cinema in mm-hmm. that she made... 30 films? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she made a lot in a very short period of time. But basically she made, you know, three or four movies that people remember and then she died in a car accident. Mm-hmm. And one of them was, I think, Jess Franco's most famous movie, Vampiros Lesbos. and What you know, a title. With a title like that, you know you're in for some fun. You know, I should say, Jess Franco... We're talking about a very male gaze filmmaker here, mm-hmm. and he has often been described as a voyeur. So I think people like me and Justin, you know, heterosexual male viewers are going to be more sympathetic to his gaze. Yeah. Uh, I th- don't, don't you think we should uh, well, address that? Uh, Stephen Thrower in the book actually talks about how, like, the idea that a film called Vampiros Lesbos that presents this could be directed toward gay women viewers is absurd like this is for men and it's supposed to be erotic for men Mm. and these like the idea of vampires biting each other on the breast as a point of eroticism is a male idea the vampire genre and the vampire mythology is heavily dependent on sex Mm -hmm. Um, it's all sex yeah and you know penetration many of the dracula stories are alluding to the idea that these women that dracula preys on are sort of virginal Mm -hmm. and yeah the penetration of his fangs and the exchange and then they make them into like sex maniacs after that they're they're impurified Mm -hmm. um gross (laughs) yeah uh, but you know it's not gross. Vampire Lesbos. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, well. Oh, it's, not gr- it's not gross to me, folks. Uh, this movie is kind of a, a, a weird variation on the Dracula story. Soledad Miranda plays, what, Dracula's daughter? Mm-hmm. What, what, Dracula's niece. Some she has, uh, Dracula left his estate to her, mm-hmm. which is an amazing thing to just hear tossed off in exposition. Now, we're getting into the period of Franco's career where minimalism is key. <laughs> so these films will take place in giant seedy beachside manors that are empty except for one or two beautiful women who walk around most often naked as this jazzy music plays and these weird cuts happen Mm -hmm. and it's pure in vampires lesbos because right from the beginning you get like this montage of credits with this twangy staticky guitar Mm -hmm. as someone mumbles i assume just franco incomprehensibly under the music and the title appears over soledad miranda lying on the ground her hands 
reaching out into the camera. <laughs> yeah, uh, her long red a scarf going toward the camera as well, just kind of floating in and out of frame. Soledad Miranda in the movie, even though she is the heir to the Dracula fortune, she performs a cabaret act at this local tavern, which is kind of a striptease act, but it's on this black stage and she's wearing a cape and, you know, it's like small red pieces of clothing set against this black backdrop as she and like Maria Rome or somebody will do this these alluring weird dances in front of a mirror and someone's pretending to be a mannequin and i don't know how to explain it to you maybe folks you will find this less compelling than i do but it is pure cinema to me franco is obsessed with cabaret performances because you almost feel like to him there's nothing separating the audience and what's happening on screen if it's on a stage Mm. because then it's just there and you get to watch it just happen and also these scenes, like there, there is barely such thing as a plot in his no. movies. It's all, it's all scenes that don't move the plot forward, and you, you're just invited to kind of luxuriate in the strangeness of them. And Vampire Flesbos also has these baffling cutaways to a scorpion running across the floor, or a kite in the mm. wind, or blood streaming down a window that Franco goes back to again and again and again throughout the film. And I remember this movie being very kind of surreal and stylish and it is but it's also filmed again in these uh, very mundane locations uh, these sun-baked kind of by the sea locations like just kind of average looking hotel robes and yet rendered through Franco's camera very strange his ability to like just capture color in this film is like boom Mm -hmm. every piece of clothing people wear is like bright and primary and it only sticks out from these kind of blah environments that they often find themselves in there is also uh, speaking of the nonsensical plot franco himself appears as this like sadistic dungeon dweller (laughs) yes who captures women and just cuts them up yeah, and totally unrelated to the plot. You know, the way we're describing it, like, w- would you say that his cinema is sexist? I'm sorry that I'm tossing this ball off to you. Uh, uh, I thought about that a lot watching this film. And the thing is that, like, there's a man behind the camera controlling all this. And you'd be denying if it wasn't a leering camera, right? Because yeah. he's, like, looking at all this stuff. He, he but loves the female form. Men are often not in power in his films. Because, like, in mm. Vampire Lesbos, other than the boyfriend having a token feels like tacked on a happy ending at the film they are just inferior to everything going on mm-hmm. and when i think of men in the cinema of franco i think of them as usually monsters and the women are the ones that are powerful even in something like the awful dr orloff mm-hmm. while as a man that's you know at the center of the narrative the detective that's trying to solve these things it's a woman who is the one that essentially takes him down mm-hmm. so it's like the women that are front and center in these films in positions of power while the men are subservient to them and the women are always very uh, con- Confident in their sexuality. Mm. I mean, aside from Justine, that is. Mm. And, you know, you can say, well, they're confident in their sexuality at the service of a male gaze. That's the thing, right? Because at the end of the day, this is for Jess Franco. And most of his films do often deal with lesbianism Mm -hmm. and sexuality in a very direct way. Now, Vampirus Lesbos, I think, is with Count Dracula a turning point in his career. This is where it gets, you know, even further away from narrative than it used to be, Mm -hmm. where it gets more aggressively sexual. The rest of his movies from this point on, they would often have horror elements. He would make horror movies again. Jack the Ripper with Klaus Kinski. That is, what a snooze. It is a snooze, but it's also like back to that Harry Allen Towers yeah. feel. He worked with another European producer at that time who was funding his project, so they have like a little bit more slickness to them, mm-hmm. but 
between those films, he would make his own stuff. So Jess Franco, we talked about it, someone who always had to be filming. Not only did he always film, he would take the money from one project and then go start shooting something else or take footage from something and craft a whole other movie around it. When the Cinematheque Francais did a retrospective of him, they called it Fragments from an Impossible Filmography. Mm -hmm. And it actually is an impossible filmography because estimates have ranged from like 180 to 220. People don't know. Some of those were not completed. You know, there's a movie called Exorcism that was re-edited into The Sadist of Notre Dame, which... I think it's like 70% footage from Exorcism, but he casts himself as the protagonist. As the protagonist. So it's a totally different movie because of that extra 30%. Uh, if you just look at just Franco in his films, he always plays the Weasley monster guy who gets killed in his film. And like it happens again and again and again in all of his movies. Now for me, Vampiros Lesbos is the beginning of the period where I really like Franco. Mm -hmm. And uh, me too. It's also kind of where we're leaving him off in this episode. Yes, because in 1973, he would make another film that is like the ultimate Franco experience, which is a film called Female Vampire, which would star his partner, Lena Romay, who would become his life partner. And I think that Lena Romay and Jess Franco are inseparable from that point on. Mm -hmm. She would like produce his films. She would star in them. She would help write them. She would do essentially everything by his side. So the rest of his filmography is Romay and Franco. So that would be the subject of our part two episode. Which will be coming soon. Uh, Stephen Thrower, who wrote the book on Franco, Murderous Passions. Which is a massive hardcover, like, I think it's like 600 pages. It's a, a thing of beauty. It's incredible. It's everything you would ever want to know with Franco. If you want to know about Franco and you want an, encyclo and you want an encyclopedia of his work, buy Murderous Passions now. And you should also buy the second volume. Which is coming out in March, I it's think. It's out. Uh, my friend has it. He has a copy of it. It's bigger than Murderous Passions. Oh, man. And, and, it's and all the good stuff. Man, that second half of his career when he's doing all this porn mm -hmm. uh, and all, all these... He's doing a movie with Mark Hamill. Yes. Uh, uh, and the forgotten uh, Sheen slash Estevez brother and Christopher Lee again. Yeah. A World War II action film. He's doing direct-to-video stuff in the late 90s. You know, he did a movie with Linnea Quigley for God's sake. You know that, like, Franco in the 90s, it was fans that were funding his features that were shot on VHS. That's what I want to know about. That's the fascinating stuff. And uh, we're going to know about it soon. Yeah, so we, yeah soon. <laughs> we don't know when it'll drop, but pretty soon. Yeah, we're only scratching, like, as we get Venus and Furs and Vampires Lesbos, like, that's when he's just getting good or interesting for us. Mm -hmm. So we're leaving you off like it's a Saturday morning cereal, a cliffhanger to when we get to the true Jess Franco. So on our Patreon this week, we talk about another auteur, <laughs> somebody else whose uh, filmography varies widely in quality and who just like free associative writing exercises puts his id on screen. And that's M. Night Shyamalan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Jess Franco, M. Night, they're like brothers in arms. Uh, we focused on Unbreakable because Glass is coming out. And Unbreakable is a movie that People, when they talk about M. Night, they're like, oh, Unbreakable's really good. Mm -hmm. That is, it's not the underdog, but it's like the one it's that... It's the thinking man's Shyamalan movie. <laughs> that's right. I mean, I think that's The Last Airbender, which has <laughs> not had its day in the sun yet, but soon. I, I soon. think it's Stuart Little. <laughs> Stuart Little. He did not direct that. He only wrote it. Did you hear that he did an uncredited uh, a rewrite on She's All That? I did hear that, yeah. Did he write the scene where uh, somebody eats the pubes? 
You remember that scene? No, I don't. Okay. What wow. did that happen? I'm sure many of our listeners will remember it. I get confused. She's all that with not another teen movie that kind of blend in my mind. I'm not sure which one's the parody or which one's the real one. I think of the scene in Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back when Jason <laughs> Mewes says, Miramax, don't they do classy pictures? And then Ben Affleck says, yeah, but then they made She's All That. And, and all went, went to hell. Yeah. yeah. Making your gay uh, serial killers on horseback films. Kevin Smith, uh, yeah. great filmmaker. <laughs> Mascot of the important cinema club. Tusk. What, what is Tusk if not a Jess Franco type experience? So you can go, <laughs> <laughs> you can become a Patreon subscriber by going to patreon.com slash the important cinema club. $5 a month and you get a new episode every week that are exclusive to the Patreon. $10 a month and you can subscribe to the paper newsletter that ships out at the beginning of every month and you get in the mail. So make sure to write your address if you do the $10 a month option. We're also doing a contest because I want to get 200 subscribers by the end of January. First prize you get a $5 subscription to the Patreon for free for an Whoa. entire year. Second prize, two film books, one of them being a Pauline KL one. Um, you want to get her off your shelf? Yeah, whatever's on my shelf. But other people will enjoy it. All right. Third prize, impossible horror. Third prize is you're fired. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, if you become a Patreon subscriber... Uh, before the end of January, you will be entered into this contest. On the first episode in February, we'll announce all the winners. So make sure to tune in. And by this time, it'll be too late. But if you're a Patreon subscriber, we're going to pick a name out of a... Uh, essentially the giant cyber hat and you'll be able to pick a subject for a Patreon episode. When I say subject, I mean one movie because, come on, please, you're going to kill us if you make us watch like 10 of them. Yeah. So uh, if you become a Patreon subscriber, just know that that option is in the running. Justin, so, do we have any letters this week? We do have some letters. Our first letter is from Nate Arch and he goes, Gents, you are probably contractually prohibited from talking about this film in terms of best of list, but I would like to submit a best of vote for a little film about two Canadian podcast hosts who also double as a security guard and a mathematician who attempt to solve the case of mysterious noises and objects showing up on the streets of Toronto. This film is called Impossible Horror. Aww. Ah, that's sweet. Seriously, though, Porn Cinema Club Nation should buy this movie, share it with their friends, and enjoy. It's a lot of fun. Thanks, Justin. It was a blast of pure indie joy, and I can't wait to see your next film. You you know what? I agree with Nate. <laughs> also, thanks to Will for his portrayal of a detective mathematician. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I, f I forgot I'm in Impossible Horror. <laughs> um, and if anybody listening to this is interested, you can purchase Impossible Horror on Blu-ray at uh, impossiblehorror.com. Order it and I'll write a nice little note being like, thank you for be buying this Blu-ray and being an important Cinema Club listener. Do you folks know that I have an IMDb page because of Impossible Horror? <laughs> <laughs> you only have that one credit on yeah, it? that's it. You were so excited. On set when we were about to shoot, you're like, can't wait for my IMDb page. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thanks very much for the letter, Nate, and for that plug that I did not commission myself. Okay, so our next letter is from Kay Parrington, and the title is, Jess Frank go in porn not related oh man i'm uh, sharpening my knife here you know i'm uh, putting a bib on and i can't wait to feast into this letter hi justin and will thanks as always for introducing new films to put on my watch list or in the case of todd browning not to watch oh in my last letter i gently don't like todd browning <laughs> well i mean some of the movies we talked about we uh Rough stuff. Freaks. Yeah, yeah, freaks. Of course, everybody should watch freaks. In my last letter, I gently disparaged Jess Franco, but your enthusiasm for his work made me seek out a few more of his films with a more open mind. And I like them. I was a big fan of Bloody Moon and the erotic rites of Frankenstein. Oh, I love the erotic rites of Frankenstein. <laughs> Very excited for your eventual episode on the guy. Mm, this guy has good timing. Do you two have any recommendations for good books about him or Euro horror in general? 
as we mentioned, Stephen Thrower's uh, two Jess Franco books. Yeah, Murderous Passions. But also, Justin and I were reading this academic book about Franco, a collection of essays called The Films of Jess Franco by Antonio Lazaro Rabol and Ian Denay. Uh, and it is a collection of essays that covers his whole career, basically. It has an introduction that is a really good uh, kind of summary of his career. And some of the essays go into, I think, interesting, weird areas, mm-hmm. like his direct-to-video stuff, for instance. And if you want, like, the primer on Franco, Tim Lucas was the guy who essentially came in and put down the groundwork that everybody would build upon. Uh, he would even go and separate Jess Franco's uh, career to different phases. Um, that appeared in the first issue of Video Watchdog, which you will not be able to get, but I think it's probably available on the internet. And speaking of books about Euro horror, Stephen Thrower, who wrote the Franco book, also has a great one on Lucio Fulci, Beyond Terror. I would also recommend another kind of like groundwork pillar of Euro horror is Pete Toombs, who wrote a book called Mondo Macabro. Oh, yeah. That when you read that book, you're going to go like, I want to see every single movie that's mentioned in this. I actually like almost can't read that book because it is so dense with movies I've never heard of. <laughs> that you will probably never even and be it, able it just, to find. It, like, it makes me shake and be frustrated. <laughs> when I read Pete Toombs' book, I was like, has he has he seen these movies? Because like some of them are not only unavailable to North American audiences, they don't even exist with English subtitles anywhere. So mm-hmm. he either speaks all of these languages or he just watches them with no uh, English subtitles and just, you know, by osmosis took them in. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's where you read about like Lady Terminator and you read about like Taiwanese Kung Fu films. Mm-hmm. So much great stuff. It's out of print, unfortunately, but yeah, I think you probably find out like abooks.com somewhere for cheap. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, definitely check that one out. And the letter continues. I also have a question about an even seedier topic. Topic. Y'all have done an episode on porno auteurs, and I was wondering if you have any interest or familiarity with the queer side of the industry. I'm thinking specifically of people like Fred Halstead or Wakefield Poole or Joe Gage, who made some really groundbreaking and fascinating work in the early 70s. I recently read Willie e. Jones' biography of Halstead, incredible, and Poole's autobiography, mostly tedious, and I'm curious to hear any other thoughts about these films. Anyway, uh, please keep up the wonderful work. I actually have Fred Halstead's autobiography in a pile somewhere, and I haven't <laughs> read it yet, but I have some familiarity with with kind of the gay porn classics. Mm. I've, I've watched, I've seen L.A. plays itself, and I've seen Boys in the Sand, and... You've seen some Wakefield yeah, Pool w- movies. Wakefield Pool, uh, Vinegar Syndrome has put out several Wakefield Pool movies, and... Uh, we can't say his name for some reason. Wakefield Pool. <laughs> yeah. And the one that I like the best is Bijou, which is kind of a weird, surreal movie. It's... It like, all, no dialogue. Yeah, and, and, and kind of hallucinogenic. It feels a bit like, you know, a Kenneth Anger movie or something like that. Uh, I'd be up to do an episode on, like, gay porn auteurs, where we each yeah. watch one of their movies and just talk about them as a whole. I think I think we should, actually. I mean, I mean, you can imagine that... That we do not have the background I'm to not, talk I'm, about this stuff. I'm not out and excited to watch them Mm -hmm. (laughs) but i do find them interesting because porn movies are already kind of this like abject uh stepchild of film Mm -hmm. and then gay porn in particular is regarded as even more abject than that and so when artists like halstead or wakefield pool emerge it's kind of interesting or you know frankly bruce LeBruce, yeah kind of uh straddles the mainstream and the gay porn world in an interesting way so we will definitely check that out we should let's do an episode on that uh and the letter ends p.s justin i promise to buy impossible horror once i make back the money i spent on the vinegar syndrome sale 
<laughs> well, thank you for mentioning that. Uh, uh, Kay Parrington actually sent an email a few days later being like, whoops, I didn't know that you were doing the Just Franco episode next week, oh. but uh, that's some very um, funny timing. So next week, um, we're going to be talking about Mabel Normand. She was a silent film comedian and director. She worked at the Keystone Studio in the 1910s at the same time that Charlie Chaplin did, and she directed him in, in a number of films. Um, it's been written that she actually saved Chaplin's career and said, no, 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 we should keep him we can do stuff with him she was a director she owned her own film studio Mm -hmm. and she was taken down by scandal and died very young yes but her films have been included in those uh pioneers uh first women director box sets Mm -hmm. and i think uh, she would be an interesting one to tackle she made a lot of films with fatty arbuckle as well she was right there in the beginning Mm -hmm. of early american comedy she starred with charlie chaplin in the first feature length comedy film. That's right, Tilly's Punctured Romance. So, I think that we're probably going to watch a bunch of her shorts. Um, what's the one that she made in 1918? It's like Honey or something like that. Oh, uh, Mickey? Mickey. Mickey. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Let's watch Mickey. Because that was actually the biggest box office hit of that year. Mm. And, uh, yeah, she made a lot of shorts. I was going through her filmography. A lot of them are not very well regarded, so I'm interested to, like, dive well, in. Well, it's like Fatty and Mabel adrift and it's yeah. ten minutes of people falling. And, <laughs> yeah, uh, or a, lot, fun, of, a yeah. lot of her shorts are often, you know, rated on the fact that like oh Charlie Chaplin doesn't have much to do in this short yeah because they don't consider her as a performer either so I'm really excited to dive into that and until then my name is Justin McClue I'm Will Sloan thanks for listening so I was listening to William Friedkin on the Trailers from Hell podcast. This uh, my week. favorite podcast, I think. Uh, uh, the movies, movies that made, made us uh, made me. Yeah, and uh, God, it was so much fun. <laughs> oh uh, man, William Friedkin. <laughs> you know, I loved listening to him go after. Like, I mean, William Friedkin. I, I enjoy him, and he's also like a total ass. He's such an asshole. <laughs> and he would he would do things like Lawrence of Arabia. It's overrated. Just two, four hours of sand, or <laughs> or you know, he hated the other side of the wind so much, and he's like, I can't believe that this is gonna be what kids see when they search Orson Welles, and like Joe Dante's like, well, I think they'll probably watch Citizen Kane, and he's like, no, it's on Netflix. This is what they're gonna see. <laughs> he just wouldn't listen, and then uh, when. Joe Dante was trying to explain the movie to him a little bit. He was saying the film within a film is an Antonioni parody. Like, Friedkin couldn't even process it. He was like, he was like, Antonioni has made me think deeply about the human condition. <laughs> Wells at that period was not worthy to hold Antonioni's jockstrap. Or he's like, auteurs, bullshit. And it's like, William Friedkin, you position yourself as like the auteurs of auteurs. That's what you built your career on. And then he ends it by saying that he thinks Vince Foster was murdered. So it's just <laughs> a wild ride. I recommend everybody listen to it. I recommend that people check out the entire back catalog because I've gotten more joy from that podcast than probably any podcast ever. Every week, me and Will, it's like we, we like watch the new show on TV, <laughs> like Twin Peaks or something like that. We're like messaging each other like, oh my God, did you believe he said this or he said that? Yeah. And the fact that you can hang out with Joe Dante every week oh. is so much joy. We are in the golden age. Yeah. Really. <laughs>